Galatians 4, 1 through 7, sum it up, five words. Adoption fuels awe and affection. Adoption fuels awe and affection. That's the the high-level summary, and we'll take the next about 40 minutes to walk through that. You see it on the screen. Adoption fuels awe and affection. And at the outset, uh, what I want to do here is just take a couple of minutes to talk about adoption itself in, in a biblical sense of what that's entailing, and then our outline will simply be adoption fuels awe and adoption fuels affection. Kind of a simple thing there. So let's just talk at the outset. Adoption, we're told, um, and this is correct, is the highest privilege of the gospel. Being adopted into God's family is the highest privilege of the gospel. Now, anytime you hear a statement like that of like highest, a a superlative sort of thing, like, okay, pause, hang on a second, is there something being said here? What about justification, that I'm right with God? Isn't that maybe a higher privilege? And what we would say is that justification is a most primary blessing. It's it's there. It's to be declared right with God. It's a legal and forensic sort of declaration, but to be adopted into God's family goes beyond the, the foundational privileges to reach the highest privilege of actually being sons and daughters of the God of the universe. It's the highest privilege of the gospel. And one of the things we know about adoption is it requires full dependency upon the other person to adopt you. And, and so because of that, it fuels awe for God that he would choose to adopt us and affection for him that he would set his love on us, that we in turn love him back. We love him because he first loved us. But it's difficult in in a single setting to encapsulate all the benefits of being adopted as God's sons and daughters. Because the scope of what a father, a heavenly father, a perfect father does for you and in you is really inexhaustible. You know, I, I was just beginning to think this week about some of the benefits that I have realized through my earthly father. And there are some very obvious ones, you know, if I, I had a clothes to have on my back and I had meals to eat and a place to stay and, and some very basic things. But I also think of unique things about the cookhouse that, you know, my dad taught me a little phrase we always had was pay now, play later. Get your work done and then you can go do something fun. But if you play first, you're probably never going to get your work done. It's kind of difficult to quantify some of those things that, that get layered in there, right? Um, one of the things my dad always taught me is, hey, from your... Whenever you make money, immediately you take the first 10%, you give it to God, you take 50% and put it in savings, and then you get 40% to live on. Like, wow, that kind of reshapes how I look at money all of my life, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a benefit of having a good dad who shepherded me and thought, like, how do I treat Justin not only as an image bearer of God, but set him up for success in his life and help him to think wisely about many of these things. We had... Uh, Growing up, I remember from 7 to 8 o'clock was what we called quiet hour in the house, that you weren't allowed to turn the TV on, and if you were talking, it had to be quiet so that other people, if they wanted to, could read their Bible and pray and have a time to focus where people weren't running crazy. It's like these are just little things that are like not really all that little, pretty significant, but it's difficult to encapsulate everything that having a good father means into a single sermon. Spiritually, it's even greater than if I would just continue on on an earthly status. So you sort of see what I'm saying is we can talk about some of the major benefits, but it's hard to be exhaustive and comprehensive. Others of you will hear me say what I just said and think, Justin, that sounds great, but I don't know any of those benefits of having a good earthly father. 
Pastor Chris and I often talk about this, of having exceedingly different upbringings, where things that I was taught at age six, he was learning at age 26, seeking out someone to be a father figure for him. And you can maybe not experience it in the same way of saying, Justin, I know what that's like, but I have looked and wished longingly for years upon years to have a good father who would have taught me these things and shaped me in these ways. What's helpful for us in, in all of this, I think, is to come back to what the scriptures say in the centrality of family imagery throughout the New Testament to describe the Christian life. All over the New Testament, the, the dominant metaphor for the Christian is that of being in a family, in God's family. And let me just share a couple of these with you, and many of these are on the screen here. You see John 1, 12, we read, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave him the right to become children of God. You were in his family. Or 1 John 3, 1, we referenced this last week. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Mark 3, Jesus would say, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Or Matthew 28, this is around the, the time of the empty tomb. We read, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples the women think of them as disciples, but look how Jesus reframes this. He says, suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. See, he's, he's recasting, you're in my family. You see, not, not only is this family imagery central to kind of the high level, here's what it means to be a Christian, to be into a new family, the New Testament also uses this exact same family imagery to drive living out the Christian faith. So when we think of Christian conduct, we think back to Matthew 5, 48, that says, in my conduct, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or when we pray, what are we told? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Comes back to the family imagery. Or living by faith. Just general living by faith. Matthew 6, we read, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Or living a life free of fear from what the accusations of Satan might be against us, or fear of what might happen in the world around us. What does Romans 8 say? The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So you see this, this family imagery, being in a new family where God is my father and my brothers and sisters in Christ are really my brothers and sisters is central to both in, at a high level, what it means to be a Christian, but also how I live out every single aspect of the Christian life. That's why I say to you, it's difficult in a single sermon to encapsulate all the benefits, but what I found personally in reflecting on my earthly father, I think you will also find beneficial in reflecting on your heavenly father, is if I will pause and think about what has my earthly father provided for me? How has he loved me well? And it only took me 60 seconds or so to think back and remember a few of those things that I just shared with you. One of the things I would like for you to do coming out of this sermon is just to sit still for five or 10 minutes or an hour and reflect on what is God as my father, that he has adopted me? How does that change my life? 
How has that transformed the way I proceed as a Christian, the way I pray, the way I live by faith, the way I live free from fear? And I hope to help you unpack that a bit here, but this is an ongoing process that it takes all of our lives to live and grow into. I'll reference at several points this morning J.I. Packer and his tremendous book, Knowing God, on this topic. We have several copies in the bookstore. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to. It is deep, but it is a helpful little devotional read in the mornings as you're reading your Bible to read and pray and then uh, read this book, perhaps, or other uh, good books. Let me share just a bit of what Packer says about adoption to help, help us get started into seeing how adoption fuels the Christian life. He writes this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. I wonder if you hear that and you think, Justin, I've been thinking of worshiping God and praying to God, and a whole outlook of the Christian life that isn't centered on God as my Father. And I hope this morning, this sermon helps you to come back to this highest privilege of the gospel that if you're in Christ, you have received, and to let the reflection of that drive you forward in the Christian life. So we have two points I told you, that adoption fuels awe, and then secondly, that adoption fuels affection. So let's start with the first one. Adoption fuels awe. Paul will begin by kind of coming back to why we need adoption. And here's important. We go back to the scriptures. This is where all the authority lies. It's where all the goodness lies. I will uh, look at verses 1 through 3. Let your eyes fall back to the pages of scripture here. Galatians 4, 1 through 3. We read from Paul. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul's laying the foundation here and saying, basically, there's a preparatory period where you have not yet reached full maturity. You've not fully become an heir. Right at the beginning, verse 1, it says, I mean that the heir, you see that there? And then if you let your eyes drop down to verse 7, you'll also see that same word heir. It's kind of bookending it, that this is... Paul's section to talk about what it means to become an heir, and he starts out with this preparatory period, basically saying you aren't ready for full sonship yet. You're being prepared for it. It wasn't so long ago we were, uh, Emily and I, that is, we're working on our last will and testament, revising a few things, and one of the questions that comes up is in the um, event that there's a tragedy that occurs to Emily and myself, at what point would our daughters receive their full inheritance? They're in a preparatory period now. They're not ready for all of that. We wouldn't want to, not that it's that much, but if they were to receive a little bit there at age eight, six, and four, like, eh, probably not good to give them this amount of money. Do we wait till they're 18, 21, 25, 30, graduate from high school, college, get a job, get married, whatever you want to layer in there, there's a preparatory period. And as the father, I get to set the point and say, here's where you've reached maturity and the, you become fully an heir. So to the initial audience, then what is this preparatory period? Paul is writing both to a Jewish and a non-Jewish audience. So to the Jewish audience, you see the Old Testament, the Old Covenant being a preparation for Christ. 
So the temple is meant to tell you something about Christ. The sacrificial system is meant to tell you something about Christ. Every aspect of the Old Testament is pointing ahead to Christ. And there was a temptation for the Jews to think, we've got this all figured, we've got the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it's what we need. And he's saying, no, it's preparing you for Christ. Now, that's likely not the, the challenge that we're facing this morning, as it was likely not the primary challenge for the non-Jewish audience that Paul was writing to. What was the preparatory period looking like for them? For them, they were being prepared for Christ through a pursuit of joy and meaning and ultimate satisfaction in things outside of Christ in this world. And, and we, we do the same thing, right? The more we pursue things besides Christ, we find their emptiness. It's why Bono would tell us that he still hasn't found what he's looking for, right? It's why Jim Carrey would famously say something to the effect of, I think everybody should be rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. It's a constant pursuit that won't satisfy us. We can look to people you've heard of that are modern famous people, or we can go back to the scriptures and see the exact same point being made. Jeremiah 2.13 is helpful here in kind of thinking about this, this concept, Jeremiah 2.13, we read, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Do you hear that, that twofold thing there? I've turned away from Christ, and I've sought something else that it looks good, I've worked for it, I've invested in it, but ultimately it can't satisfy me. It's like a, a cistern with a hole in the bottom, and the water just falls right out. It can't hold me up. This is what the Bible would call idolatry, that I take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. It's not that I should reject the good thing altogether, it's just that I should keep it in its place as a good thing that's preparing me for Christ. You guys know that I love the movie Gladiator and haven't made any references to it in a sermon for a month or two, so it's time to come back. Um, if you've seen it, you know there's a, a, a guy who's training gladiators, his name is Proximo. What he wants to do more than anything else is get back to the Colosseum, the immense building, and they finally get back, and the scene in the movie, Proximo, he gets there and he just puts his arms out, closes his eyes, you know, takes a deep breath. <sighs> I've arrived, I'm here, I'm where I want to be. I had nearly a, a similar experience, or near, not nearly similar, nearly identical experience uh, a couple of years ago, I was at a Colts game. So maybe, the, went to the late game, and uh, so we were there in time for the player introductions. Right, the, the one o'clock game, it's tough to leave church quickly enough to get there, so the four o'clock one, you can be there for that, and I look over, and here's this guy in a just super nice jersey, jeans, the, you know, perfectly polished and clean Jordans, the nice watch, the whole bit, and the, the gong is ringing, and the smoke is coming up, and the fireworks are going off, and the players are running out, and here he is. Just take, just like basking in the glory of here I am in my temple to offer my worship. This is what it's all about. Like, Justin, I, I don't really want to go back to the Coliseum. I don't really want to go to Lucas Oil Stadium. I, this isn't me. Maybe, maybe those analogies connect with you. But don't we do that with relationships in certain ways as well? If I just had that relationship with a wayward child, then it would all be put back together. Or that relationship with a parent, or a particular romantic relationship. And I take what is a good thing, and I make it an ultimate thing, 
knowing all the while that it's a broken cistern that cannot hold up the weight of my soul. The Bible says we, we all do this. And the inability of those things to satisfy us is part of this preparation for Christ. It's actually meant as a signpost to point us to God. This is where that, that famous C.S. Lewis quote comes in. It basically says, if I find ultimate satisfaction in nothing in this world, it's an indicator that I was made for a different world. It's a signpost. It's a preparation. And so what Paul is saying is here, we're all going through a preparatory period preparing us for our adoptions as sons to become heirs through Christ. And verses 4 and 5, he begins to say, now here's how you become adopted. So let's look at verses 4 and 5. This is where we start to dig in and get some, some serious meat out of this. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is how you were adopted. Now, that first phrase is so interesting to me. When the fullness of time had come. Romans 5, 6 says, at just the right time Christ came. And that's such an intriguing thing. Like, what does that mean, when the fullness of time had come? I think in eternity, maybe we'll know the whole scope of it, but let me just pause here and, and think on a couple of things we know historically about how the fullness of time had come that made it the perfect time for Christ to come. You're shortly after the conquering king, the great one, Alexander the Great, has conquered the known world and brought with him a common language throughout the known world. Having that common language is huge so that when Christ comes, then the gospel can spread rapidly. There's not massive translation that needs to be done every time you cross another border. So that's significant that you've got that opportunity right at the time Christ came. Geopolitically, you're in the middle of the Roman Empire. Historians, you'll, you'll know this, history buffs, it's the Pax Romana, the Roman peace where the road system has been constructed, where you can not only communicate with others, but you can actually safely travel to see others and not be in constant fear of robbers and bandits along the way. So there's a common language and there's a way to get to others. It's not just a linguistic fullness of time, but also a, a geopolitical fullness of time. But there's also a philosophical and kind of intellectual fullness of time that had come about. The great philosopher Plato had lived just a couple of hundred years prior. And here's what Plato had written about when he was trying to find the just state, the truly just state. He would say, we all want a, a state, a government that's truly just. And yet none of us seem to have it. And how do we get there? Which is sort of funny, isn't it? The, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We're asking ourselves the same questions now. And Plato, the, probably the greatest philosopher to ever live, would say, well, to have a just state, you need a truly just ruler. And no just ruler exists or will ever exist, so we're sort of stuck, more or less, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if there were such a thing as a just ruler, a truly just ruler, what would happen? Well, he would show up. And everybody around him is so evil and wicked that they would know the just ruler would expose their wickedness. And they would say they want a just state and a just ruler, but they actually wouldn't, and so they would kill him. And so Plato would say the only, the only hope would be as if a just ruler would come from the distant land of the gods 
in his Greek philosophy that gods were so far off they would never be concerned with human affairs. The only hope for humanity would be if a just ruler would come from the land of the gods and come and rule with justice and not be able to be overthrown by the humans. But alas, the gods are so distant, so far away, they're so angry they would never be concerned with mere humans. I hope you see how incredible it is that the height of human wisdom can come so close in common grace to seeing the need for God to come and save and yet can't quite conceive of how it could be possible. And so you have all of these factors coming together of linguistically with the Greek language, geopolitically with the Roman Empire, and the Pax Romana, the road system, and philosophically that the, the intellectually elite had been prepared for the coming of Christ. So at just the fullness of time, Christ came. And it brings us back to a place of awe and wonder at the wisdom and sovereignty of God. So that when I look back to at just the right time Christ came, it helps me when I then pray, our Father who art in heaven, to know as I marvel and wonder and awe at him that whatever is in my life right now, the timing is perfect. He knows exactly what he's up to. And whatever is in my life right now, God is using it for good. That I know that when the fullness of time he sent Christ, well, he's also got his perfect wisdom and sovereignty and goodness at work in my life right now. We continue on in verses four and five. So God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. This is not just a you know, talk about God's son being sent. He's not a subordinate to God. No, he's co-equal with God, co-reigning with God from all eternity past. We read in Hebrews 1, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is the sun who controls distant galaxies to subatomic sub particles, who controls all forces of nature and movement of nations. The sun who reigns over the public plans of politicians and the secret plans of all individuals. He, that great sun, was sent, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us. What does it mean to be born of a woman? It means he was fully human. He could come, and whatever it is that we are facing at this moment in our life, he understands. He's known every temptation you've experienced. He's suffered with you far greater than any of us will suffer, and so he can be Emmanuel, God with us at all times. He was under the law to redeem those who were under the law. But what does that mean? Was Jesus bound by the law? It merely means no, he submitted himself to the law. In that, he experienced the curse, the full curse on the cross of Calvary, that the punishment demanded by God's law and our breaking of it, he took on at the cross so that we could be redeemed from it. Here's how this produces immense awe in our lives. Adoption fuels awe is the point we're in here. If somebody walks up to you and tosses you a piece of bubble gum, wow, thanks, you invested a nickel in my life. Appreciate that. If somebody walks up to you and hands you a meal from Culver's, wow, you, I must really be your friend. You thought of me and put $8 into my life. Probably a little higher than just the, the bubble gum, right? But not like incredible awe, just kind of takes you back a little bit. Somebody walks up and says, hey, 
I know you love this artist. Here are $250 seats to their next concert up at Deer Creek, or whatever they call it now. Whoa! Incredible awe. What a gift. The Son of God, who rules over the entire universe, not only submitted himself to be born of a woman, to be fully human, to understand every temptation you've ever experienced, to suffer more than any of us has ever or ever will suffer, has become like us, to die for us, to redeem us from the curse of the law. Wow. Sit and ponder that. Chew on that steak and let the flavor permeate your whole being. Packer would comment here and say, were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Adoption through propitiation, that I was the enemy of God and he adopted me and made me not just, he didn't just reduce the debt I owed, he actually made me his son, a full heir in everything that's coming through propitiation. That, that's a big theological word, what does that mean? It means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. You think about those paper towels? Somebody pours out water here, you put the paper towel down, and it pulls the water right out. It absorbs it. That's what Christ's death on the cross does. There is wrath that God has against sin, and as we sin, we're building up wrath for us, and by faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross absorbs all of God's wrath so that there's none left for us to face. And of course, the analogy sort of breaks down because if you pour enough red Kool-Aid, there is no paper towel that can get all of that out of the carpet. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Friends, the scourge of your sin and the wrath that it brings is far worse than any red Kool-Aid. But praise God that the Savior who has adopted you, if you're in Christ, is far greater than the best brand of paper towel to ever exist. That's something to bring about awe so that I can then sit back on my porch and just reflect on, I I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. Jesus is my brother, and I'm surrounded by my brothers and sisters in Christ too. John Stott would call this the great exchange where we go from being on death row before God and we're pulled off of death row and given the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's amazing. Your action point here, it's gonna be a little bit, stick with me, your action point is to reflect on adoption through propitiation and allow that to fuel awe for God. Just sit and reflect on that this afternoon. It takes us to our, our second point, adoption fuels affection. Adoption fuels affection. Verses six and seven, the, the basic point we're gonna see here is that the things we have awe for, we begin to love. My mind goes back to last summer when we, our family went to the Grand Canyon. I remember seeing it for the first time and just being gripped by utter awe. And ever since that, since my heart was first gripped with that awe, I've been loving it, loving to tell people about it. I've mentioned it in many sermons because I just keep thinking about it and wanting to get back because I love it so much. Right? That's the way this works. What 
we have awe for, we then have affection for. Look at verses six and seven where Paul begins to unpack this. We read, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, there's an awe for what God has done for you, and there's an incredible gift in his spirit that is given. I started by saying that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. It's a bit like saying what the son accomplishes is a legal justification. And the spirit is given into your heart to take what was a 2D reality and in your life fan it into flame and turn it into a 3D reality that lives and breathes and takes your breath away. The son gives you a changed status and the spirit gives you a changed heart. And this is why Jesus in John 16, this is one of the more staggering things in the Bible, actually says that the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Let's read what he says and we can talk about it a bit. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Think about how shocking that is for just a moment. How many of you would love to have Jesus walk beside you and be there forever beside you for every encounter you ever experience as a human? I would love that. And in this passage, he says, it's actually better to have the Spirit inside you than Jesus beside you. That's why many would call the, the Holy Spirit the forgotten member of the Trinity because it's just such an underdeveloped view of what a remarkable gift it is that we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us, not just giving us a changed status, but a changed heart. What a gift. And it's the Spirit inside of us that brings us to cry out, Abba, Father. The only person who cries out, Abba, Father, in the Scriptures is Jesus himself to his Father. And yet here in Galatians 4 and in Romans 8, we're told the Spirit brings us to cry out, Abba, Father. It's a privilege of sonship that no one else possesses. What's a little bit interesting to me as I studied this, I saw this for the first time this week, I had never discovered this before, that Abba, Father is a Aramaic idiom, kind of figure of speech in some ways. Which is interesting because Paul's writing to a Greek-speaking Galatian church, or group of churches, more appropriately. So why does he pull from another language? Why doesn't he just list it in their own language? And the, the reason is, that phrase is so pregnant with meaning in the Aramaic that he's giving it to them and saying, hey, dwell on the thickness of this, and it's almost expecting them to study a little deeper and see what exactly is meant by that. So I think it's important that if Paul would expect them to do that, that we ourselves would do that as well. So at least four things are implied by this phrase, Abba, Father, that should inform how we think about praying to God and our affections for God based on his adoption of us as sons. First, it's a, a heart-rending crying out. He doesn't say we call Abba, Father. We say Abba, Father. We cry Abba, Father. If there's an emotional depth here that is, is difficult to put into words. Some of you have been in seasons of exceeding sorrow and exceeding joy, and you know what that's like. I don't really have words for this. There's just such a depth of emotion and feeling that I could cry out and say, Abba, Father, I need you. Thank you. I'm grateful. 
help me. Second thing, there's a spontaneity in joy of being, being able to call out to the Father. So you might be in, in heart-rending suffering, but there's joy in the ability to cry out spontaneously. You don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to get on schedule and get a slot two weeks out from now with God to talk to him about that, right? The third thing is that there's a, a very real presence of God that is communicated in crying out, Abba, Father. In other words, if you're not home, your kids won't cry out, Abba, Father, in the same way because you are not there. But there's a real presence of God the Father always with you and not only the real presence, that's third, fourth, a warm embrace of the Father. Maybe say, Justin, I had a dad who was physically there but emotionally absent. And so I wouldn't cry out, Abba, Father, to him because even though technically he was there, really he wasn't. Say, no, that's not what this father is like. He's adopting you into the family and into a perpetual and never-ending warm embrace. What does this mean exactly for us? To think about praying with God as our Father. How does that transform our prayer life? Well, it means that, that I cry out with affection for my Father, with intimacy of relationship and complete dependence on him. Maybe it's helpful to say, what would that look like if I did not cry out to God as my father? What would that look like? Rather than crying out with affection for him, I might cry out with frustration, with disdain, with indignation, with despair. God, where are you at? That's not recognizing my adoption as a son and allowing that to be the driving understanding of my Christian life. Maybe you've said or maybe you've heard somebody say, boy, this situation, all we can do is pray. Or has it really come to that? There's nothing left to do. <laughs> what does that do exactly? It undermines the reality of what Paul's saying here, that we're not living with adoption at the forefront of our Christian life. Because if you knew that you were calling on the God of the universe who is there for you as a father is there at three in the morning to take care of his crying child, you would recognize, wow, I get to cry out, Abba, Father, not it's my last resort. That's why Isaiah 57 would, would paint this contrast of the, the highness and the distance of God with the nearness and the closeness of God together to encourage our hearts. Isaiah 57, we read, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Distance. He says, I dwell in the high and the holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He's so beyond and yet so concerned, so interested in what's happening in your life. Do you talk to him in that way? Or do you proceed as a functional atheist or functional, perhaps just a nominal Christian? The last part there of, of verse seven, it speaks to being an heir. There's an inheritance. Where I say, not only is God with me right now, and caring for me, but I have an eternal home. 
Psalm 37 and Matthew 5 speak of us inheriting the earth. Revelation 5 goes beyond saying you would inherit the earth, but to say we will reign on the earth. We will co-reign with God as his sons and daughters. Think about that. Imagine someone gives you a gift. We've talked about that a bit before. And the greater the gift, the greater the affection. Imagine you make it onto one of those TV shows where you get a new house and they fix it up and you know, there's, there's all these knockoffs of what used to be Extreme Makeover Home Edition and everybody's taken it and run with it ever since, right? Imagine you make it onto one of those shows and at the conclusion, you send them sort of a trite, simple, hey, thanks for the house, really enjoy it, big upgrade, two emoji thumbs. They just kind of look at you like, do you understand the gift you received? That's nice, but no, you're, what are you going to do? You're going to send an effusive letter. You have all the kids sign it, even with their backwards letters that they're still learning to write. You're going to get at the iPhone, and you're going to record yourself saying thanks and send a video as well and put it on social media and tag all the people who made it possible. You're going to go and try and visit some of the benefactors that made it possible. Say, wow, what an incredible gift. Let me show this affection for what you've done for me, what you've given to me. Friends, I wonder this morning if our prayers are truly marked by awe and affection for our adoption, or if our prayers are kind of like the, the, the stereotypical meal prayer, rote, kind of cold, distant, not an intimate, spontaneous, joyful crying out to our Father. So what do you do? That's kind of my prayer life, Justin. I, being honest, I'm probably a little colder than it ought to be, a little more distant, a little less intimate than what God intends. We go back to what we said before, if I take a deep breath and I reflect on the gift that's been given. I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. Jesus is my brother, and you all are my brothers and sisters in Christ too. I've been adopted. I'm no longer on death row. I've been given the Congressional Medal of Honor. Friends, when we see the beauty of our adoption, it's the cost that Jesus went to to adopt us, that we're adopted through his wrath-absorbing sacrifice, adoption through propitiation, that fuels life change in every area. I started by telling you that it's difficult to encapsulate the whole of what adoption does in our life. Let me give you one simple example to illustrate how reflecting on this will fuel you for whatever you're staring down this afternoon and tomorrow morning. I talked about the Grand Canyon before. Going there, loving it, awe of the Grand Canyon, affection for our time there, wanting to go back. Do you know what I don't need at this juncture? I don't need Ed Ferguson to send me a checklist of how I get myself to the Grand Canyon. I don't need that right now. Do you know why I don't need that right now? Because I have seen with my own eyes the wonder of the Grand Canyon. Say, wow, that's true beauty. Let me get there. And the checklist helps to guide me that he sends me when I'm not convinced that it's really worth my time to go do it. And so he says, hey, here's the first step, and here's the second, and here's the third. But once you see it and taste it, wow, how can I get more of that in my life? How can I get back there? 
And so for us, when we're saying, man, I need to step back and just reflect on the beauty of what God has done for me in Christ. It will transform my prayers. That's the specific focus of Galatians 4, but it will touch every area of your life as well. Let me close with a a very reflective sort of quote back from the Packer book I referenced before. And I wonder if you wouldn't just sort of pray, hear hear what's being said, and, and be praying to the Lord as you hear this. I'll read and then we can close. Packer writes, Do I, as a Christian, understand myself? Do I know my real identity, my own real destiny? I am a child of God, and God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother, and every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian secret of a happy life? Yes, certainly, but we have something both higher and profounder to say. This is the Christian secret to a Christian life and a God-honoring life. And these are the aspects of the situation that really matter. May this secret become fully yours and fully mine. God in Christ, through his atoning death on the cross, has adopted you into his family. And he's loving you and leading you and guiding you until you make it home. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would fill our hearts with awe and affection for what you have done for us in Christ, for how you have adopted us into your family. Give us eyes to see the wonder, the cost, the love. And may we be compelled to live lives of awe-filled gratitude to you. That we not only know you, but make you known. That we live out of the abundance of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.